0: This past Tuesday, I got to be at this really cool uh, men's group where one of my dear brothers uh, shared his story of how the Lord rescued him, and man, it was awesome, and uh, a cool thing happens whenever we tell our story. It tears down the wall between Bible times and these times, that He's not just the God who rescued, but he's the God who rescues. He's not the God who saved, but he's the God who saves. And I think this is important because I think maybe some of you here this morning might feel that you are stuck. Maybe stuck in some pain, some pattern, some lie and you think you are stuck and you are not. And you might be thinking, will he rescue again? Because The first time he rescued me, man, he pulled out all the stops. It was a doozy. And if he went through all that the first time, could he possibly do that again? Will he rescue again or does he just have one in the chamber and that was it? Will he rescue again? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 16. The first 13 verses are judgment. Verses 14 and 15 are hope. And then he dips back into a little bit more judgment in verses 16 through 18, which this is pretty characteristic of all your prophets. As you're reading through your Bible this year, we get to the prophets, you're gonna grow very accustomed to every single prophet having these two dual-wielding Megaphones, And one is judgment is coming and you cannot escape, judgment. And then the other one is there is still a future hope, judgment and hope. And they go back and forth. And here, even in our passage, a little microcosm of that judgment, hope, judgment, and then glory. And in a way that is uh, way more beautiful and big than we could imagine, because you might think the way that he pours his judgment on his people, Israel, and then tells about their future hope that comes after their judgment. We might think this is all about glory from Israel, but we're gonna see that he uses this hope of rescue for Israel to get glory from all. And so that's where we're going here in chapter 16. We're gonna start in verse one, and I better pray real quick. Actually, better yet, Let's bow and will you please pray right there in your seat and just ask the Lord to speak through me and to open all of our hearts. Lord God, we need you right now, desperately. I need you to say what you want to say, we need you to listen. We need you to stay uh, focused and to hear from you everything you want to reveal to us about yourself and give us hearts to hear and to repent and to believe and to obey We will need your help. Lord Jesus, please show us yourself through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse one. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah, came to Jeremiah, and this is the word of the Lord. You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. Man, we can't even get to verse three before a major punch in the gut. This is, is a tough assignment for this man of God. This prophet has this assignment from God, and he says, do not marry and do not have kids. And it reminds me of Hosea, where God can do and ask us whatever he wants on either side of any issue. He can tell, he can tell Jeremiah, don't get married, and he can tell Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. Hosea, you marry a prostitute so that your whole life is an object lesson to show people my love for them. And then he says to Jeremiah, you don't marry or have kids at all because I want your whole life to be an object lesson to show people my wrath, my judgment. And the question is, does God get to do that? Does God get to ask us Anything. This is a tough ask. But he gets to because he is king of kings and Lord of lords, author of life, sustainer of everything. And then he tells us why. Why does he ask him not to marry or have kids? Verse three starts with the word for and that usually answers the question why. Why can't I have a wife or kids? For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place and concerning the mothers who are born them and the fathers who fathered them in this land, they shall die of deadly diseases. So he's saying, every son, every daughter, every parent, every husband, every wife in this place is going to be completely destroyed. They will die. And so he's saying, if you had kids and if you were married, they would be in the same category. He's saying, do not marry or have kids because everyone here is going to be wiped out. And you might think, well, okay, but maybe at least they can have a nice burial or a nice funeral service where people might say some nice honoring things or lamenting thoughts. Uh, Maybe there can at least be some respect or honor there, but it says, verse four, they shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. They shall perish by the sword and by famine, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. Do you see, this is judgment language, and this is pretty harsh And the destruction and death is going to be so fast and so furious and so complete followed by exile that they're not gonna have time to bury the bodies that are piling up. So to add to the death is dishonor. So he says, first of all, do not have a family because everyone here is gonna be wiped out. So there's still something to be answered about. What exactly is the connection? I understand everybody's gonna be wiped out. So he's telling him, don't have your own family because they would just be wiped out. Now the question is, is he asking him to do that for Jeremiah or for God? Do you see what I'm saying? Is he saying, I'd rather you not have a family, Jeremiah, because I'm trying to spare you some pain because they would just die too and I don't want you to have to grieve that loss. Or is he doing it for God? Is he saying, Jeremiah, I don't want you to have a family because your whole life is an object lesson so that when people ask you why you don't have a wife and kids or you're telling them the reason I'm not is part of God showing and displaying his judgment towards his people. And man, this is... is, If you're like me, you struggle with this and you think, man, that is harsh. To ask him for, like imagine if a word from the Lord was either given to you by your parents or that you received it at like 12 years old and he said, you will not get married, you will not have kids because I want your life to be a display of my judgment." That's a harsh assignment. And I think the reason that I think that is so harsh, whenever I have those thoughts and feelings, it reveals in me, it reveals some disbelief in my own heart. It it reminds me of whenever I think about marriage and how whenever he returns, my marriage to Kristen is gonna be a little bit different. And it's not that she's all mine and I'm all hers, period, that we are all married to Christ and that sometimes I, I have a hard time looking t- towards that aspect with optimism. And why is that? It's because I'm not believing that to be married to Christ is infinitely better than my marriage to Kristen. It's me not believing. And it's not that God is trying to take my marriage and knock it down a level. It's that he's saying, whatever this is, being married to me <laughs> is so much infinitely better. So when I go, man, that's going to be hard, it's because I'm not believing. And so here's the assignment to Jeremiah don't marry, don't have kids. And whenever I go, gosh, that is brutal, why? It's because I'm not believing that obedience to the Lord and enjoying Him directly is an infinitely better pleasure than family. The delight of obedience and trust in him is a better pleasure than family. But this was his assignment. He says, the Lord says to Jeremiah, don't have a wife and kids because it's a display to them. It's a teaching element to Israel related to the fact that everybody here is gonna die. Verse five, Now, imagine a do not enter sign because God is gonna give two do not enter statements to Jeremiah. He commanded him not to have a family and now he gives him two do not enters. Verse five, thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning or go to lament or grieve for them. Okay, so you've got people dying all over the place and to add to that, he says, don't even go It would be the most natural thing in the world for people to be dying and for God's messenger, God's prophet to go and be a comfort to people. But he says, no, do not enter the house of mourning. Why not? For, again, answering the question why, for I have taken away my peace from this people, my steadfast love and mercy declares the Lord. That's heavy. In that animated movie, there's like these core memories that drop down. And I feel like this is like core attributes of who God is. Who is God? He is peace, He is steadfast love, and He is mercy. And it's like he's saying these core aspects of who I am and, and, and the foundation of my covenant relationship with you all, Israel, I'm taking that away from them. This is bizarre. He's essentially saying, this is who I am, but I'm gonna cease to be who I am. I'm gonna cease being God to you. My peace, my steadfast love, and my mercy taken away it feels like he's saying relationship over. And so Jeremiah might be thinking, can I, uh, can I give them any comfort at all? And it says in verse six, both great and small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried and no one shall lament for them or cut himself or make himself bald for them. And these are, there are some pagan practices of how to mourn for the dead mixed in here that sad that he has to mention that to the Israelites because that's getting pagan practices mixed in. Not unlike us, but he says in verse seven, no one shall break bread for the mourner to comfort him for the dead, nor shall anyone give him the cup of consolation to drink for his father or his mother. God tells Jeremiah, all expressions of comfort are off limits. Do not mourn for them. Do not give them any comfort. Why? Why not? Because Jeremiah's actions to them are to be a reflection of how God relates to them. How Jeremiah relates to them is to be a reflection of how God is relating to them in judgment. He has taken himself and his love away from them, and Jeremiah's relationship to them should reflect that as well. He has taken himself away from them completely, which is not necessarily the same as permanently. But he's making sure that the message and the life of the man who's delivering the message, everything about it is communicating. It's over. It's too far gone. Verse 8 is another, do not enter. You shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them, to eat or drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will silence in this place before your eyes and in your days, the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sort of epitome of celebration a bride and a groom. And he's saying all of these forms of joy Happiness, gladness, I will silence them all. So don't have a family, don't go mourn for them and do not celebrate for them. Don't mourn for them because I'm not providing them comfort and don't celebrate with them because I'm taking their joy. And the way that you speak to them and treat them, treat Judah, the way you treat my people is to reflect the extent of how I have taken my steadfast love away from them. What a strange thing for the Lord to say. Isn't that an oxymoron to take away steadfast love? But this is what he says. And then he anticipates a potential uh, question in the mind of Judah, of God's people, the the tribe that remains in the South, who he's writing to here. And he says in verse 10, this is the question. Uh, This is God speaking to Jeremiah. When you tell this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? This is him saying, they're gonna ask you, they're gonna say, what have we done that is so bad that would provoke him to this much anger and wrath and judgment? And he gives the answer in verse 11. Then you shall say to them, because, because is answering the question, why? because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord. You have gone after, wait, and have gone after other gods and have served and worshiped them and have forsaken, there's the word forsaken twice, me, and have not kept my law. So forsaken, that they have turned their back on God. And then that phrase, gone after other gods, and you should be calling into mind earlier in the book of Jeremiah when he described in in vivid detail, that them going after other gods is sexual language for a uh, frenzied pursuit of other lovers. He's saying, Why this big, harsh judgment? Because your fathers have forsaken me and have gone after other gods. And so they could say, okay, but I'm not my dad. So why is that my fault? And so he says in verse 12, and because, so why is this coming against me? Verse 11 says, because your fathers did all these things. And verse 12 says, and because you. You're not innocent here in the current generation. He says, and because you have done worse Than your fathers, what could possibly be worse than forsaking God and going after other lovers? He tells us, verse 12, and because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his stubborn evil will, refusing to listen to me. Refusing to listen to me. It's almost like he's saying, You should have had the benefit of learning from your fathers before you by watching them and learning from their disobedience. You should have known better. And I keep sending you prophets to plead with you to repent and come back to me. And you will not listen. This is what's worse. To not listen. And this is kind of convicting for me. How well do you listen to the Lord? Whenever He sends word to you through the Scriptures, through prayer, through A mentor, through a brother, a sister, a roommate. And sometimes it's a whisper from the Lord through their actions that if you have ears to hear, you can hear the Lord speaking to you. Or maybe we're in the Word and we're in such a hurry that we don't have a shot at listening, we're just getting through it. Are we listening to the voice of the Lord? This is what was worse. He says, my judgment is coming because they refused to listen. This is what stirs his wrath and judgment, not listening, being stubborn, not being able to take correction, a rebuke, being defensive and explaining why we did what we did rather than listening to the Lord. Verse 13, therefore, okay, that is a word saying I'm gonna explain for you here. Now he's going to explain how this judgment is going to happen. This judgment is coming. He just got done telling us why they deserve the judgment and now how is it gonna come? How's the judgment coming? Verse 13, therefore, I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods day and night for I will show you no favor. Wow, so he's taken away peace, steadfast love, mercy, and favor, his kindness. He's taken it all away from them. And he says, this is how it's gonna go down. You're in a land right now. It's the promised land that he promised to Abraham that now God's people are in, but their land is shrinking and now they're about to be in Jerusalem and it's about to crumble and they're gonna be dragged out of there into Babylon. I'm gonna hurl you out of this land, the promised land, into a land that you didn't know. That's Babylon. The fulfillment of this is in 586 B.C., When you've got Babylon coming, they surround Jerusalem. Finally, the city falls and they take away the best into captivity into Babylon where they're in essentially a timeout for 70 years. Where God put him in the promised land. He sent prophet after prophet to say, knock it off, knock it off. Stop worshiping other gods. Stop worshiping other gods if you don't stop worshiping other gods, so help me, me, I will kick you out of this land. And he finally does it. In 586, the Babylonians, the, the, they take them away into Babylon. And this reminds me of uh, whenever uh, my son Ian was like young enough that he's still f- just figuring out how to talk. We were watching this Bible movie about some of this, and then uh, after the movie's over, he disappeared for a little while into his room, and he came back out wearing like pirate gear, like like Josh had an eye patch on and uh, had had a bandana on, and he came over and he grabbed my hand and just started pulling and dragging me. I'm like, "What is going on?" He looks at me and goes, "You come of me a Babylon?" So I'm like, "I'm going, all right, going to Babylon." So this is the judgment of God's chosen people that God says, you are deserving of judgment and wrath because you have turned your back on me. And after mercy and patience and mercy and patience, I'm bringing my servant Babylon to take you away into Babylon. And this is their judgment, into a land that they didn't know And it says, there you shall serve. This is verse 13. It says, there you shall serve other gods day and night. You will serve other gods day and night. And this serving of other gods, this is what they wanted, right? This is what they were choosing to do when they were in the promised land. And now this thing that they thought they wanted becomes their prison, You wanna worship other gods? Okay, I'll put you in a land where that's all you're gonna do. You're gonna worship other gods without me. You're not gonna pretend that you can do both anymore. And this reminds me of my papa told me a story of when his parents caught him smoking cigarettes. Uh, They said, you wanna smoke? All right, you're gonna smoke. And they grabbed a pack of cigarettes, locked him in a closet, and, said, and gave him the lighter in the pack and said, when it's done, you can come out. You want to smoke? I'm going to make you smoke until you're sick. He never touched another cigarette in his life. It worked. It's like God saying, you want quail? Oh, I'll give you quail until it's coming out your nostrils. This is the terrifying thing about God. Is that if he's saying, I don't want this for you, we go, oh, but I really wanted him. Come on, God. No, this is, I, I, I don't want you. To, but please, God, come on. And we keep going. Eventually, he says, okay. Eventually, he will give us what we think we want. And it becomes an instructive judgment. And they were in the promised land trying to do both. Worship God and worship everything else. Let Yahweh be their God and be their own God. And he said, I'm not playing this game anymore. I'm gonna put you in Babylon where you will worship other gods. You will serve other gods only. So here they are in Babylon, and they're stuck there in judgment, having God removed his love and his self from them. Is this the end? Verse 14, therefore, and I don't know if any of you have a different translation, that conjunction there can be translated yet as a contrast, which that particular word is rarely used that way, but there are some instances and strong early manuscript support that that can be a contrast word that could read, rather than therefore, it could read yet, which makes good sense with the context because he's saying, I'm going to judge you by hurling you into Babylon. That's all bad. Yet, something good. Behold, verse 14, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but, contrast, as the Lord lives who brought up the people, out of, of the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. Why will they say this one instead of that one? For I will bring them back. Here's the explanation of the change of the statement. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave their father's. Okay, let's break this down. What you have here is two parallel oath formulas. These, and they're contrasted against each other. One of them, when you really wanna put something on a statement that you're trying to make, you wanna add an oath. Like, I will be there as the Lord, God is my witness kind of a thing. And this is saying, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That's sort of a, solid, strong foundation to make an oath based off of. As that Lord, as that God, which God? The one, did y'all did y'all hear about what this God did with those Hebrews? Did you hear about what he did to Pharaoh and all of their gods? He humiliated them. He destroyed them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That God Does he live? You better believe he does. We've seen his power displayed. As that God lives, I will make this oath that this other thing is gonna happen. So it's an oath formula. And now he's saying, that's a rock solid statement to make an oath based off of. But he's gonna say, now, you thought that was awesome. You thought that rescue was awesome. There's another rescue coming that's gonna blow that one out of the water. And they're no longer gonna look back at that exodus event as the bedrock of their faith and of his glory and might and wonder. There's gonna be a new rescue that from now on they're gonna look back and go, this is the God who delivered them from the north country and everywhere they were scattered. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying there's gonna be a time when there will be a new exodus that will blow the old exodus out of the water. So he goes from saying, the judgment is coming for you. It's gonna be really, really bad. I'm removing my steadfast love. You're gonna be on your own in Babylon. But this is the hope. There's gonna, I will rescue again. And when that happens, People are gonna, it's going to eclipse the Exodus story. What kind of a rescue would it have to be to eclipse that? I'll bring them back to their land. And notice. In those two oath statements, these are not necessarily oath statements that God's people, chosen people, Israel, are gonna use. Because it says, as the Lord lives who brought up Israel. It doesn't say who brought us up. This is a little clue that what God is doing to rescue his people is meant to, to have ripple effects out to all nations so that they will look at this rescue and go, man, as that God lives, who rescues and rescues again, as that God lives, I'm gonna go with them, that they're supposed to see something about this God and say, man, I want in. Now, Before we move on from verse 15, I have to ask a question that I'm gonna try to not get bogged down in, but God is going to bring his people back. He's going to gather his people. It will be a second rescue, a a second exodus. Has that happened yet? I think this is like so many other prophecies that are first partially fulfilled and then later ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So they were in time out in Babylon for 70 years and then did they come back into the land? Yes, because remember, Persia swallowed up Babylon and the new Persian king looked at all the Hebrews and said, hey, y'all can go back if you want. You can rebuild your temple. That's when you, what you read in Ezra and Nehemiah, right? So they have come back. This is the partial fulfillment, but it's not complete yet because of what comes next. And he's talking about this future hope, but first he's gonna go back to judgment again. Remember the prophets, they're going, judgment's coming, there's a future hope. Judgment's coming, there's a future hope. So now he's gonna, after he talked about the hope of this second rescue, he's gonna go back into judgment real quick. Verse 16, behold, Jeremiah, God is speaking to Jeremiah, I am sending for many fishers declares the lord that they shall catch them meaning catching judah and afterward i will send for many hunters and they shall hunt them for every mountain and every hill out of the clefts of the rock so he's saying jeremiah my people are going to become prey i'm sending other nations to come and enforce my judgment on them why verse 17:4 my eyes are on all their ways They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. This is God saying, you think I don't see what you're doing? And that seems so silly and stupid, but man, don't we do that all the time? And I'll just say, if you've ever... uh, been on your phone or computer or or doing anything and found yourself like looking over your shoulder, like there's a good chance that you're doing something that you don't want somebody to see you doing. Or any other number of ways that we subtly try to cover our tracks that we don't want to be found out by humans and not really thinking about, the one we should be fearing and he sees everything. Do we really think we can hide from him? And he says, I see all that they're doing. That's why my judgment is coming. And I'll get to Jesus in a minute, but we have judgment and wrath stirred up by all the things that we do that we think are hidden, by all the ways that we run after other lovers and by all the ways that we refuse to listen to him lovingly reaching out in rebuke and correction. And so he talks about their judgment, fishers, hunters, I see it all. And then in verse 18, he says, but first, meaning before I restore them, before I rescue them again, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin. Why? Because, and it's not because there was just a little bit of idolatry, because they have polluted my land, the carcasses, their detestable idols, and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. And so God is telling Jeremiah, what has he told him so far? Don't have a family, don't mourn, don't celebrate with them. Why? Because judgment is coming. Why is judgment coming? Because you're, of your idolatry, your forsaking, and refusing to listen. And what's it going to look like? I'm going to bring Babylon to take you away. And then there will be a second Exodus. And the second exodus will have a ripple effect out to all nations saying, man, as that God lives. And they will take notice. So look in verse 19, see what's happening in light of what we've, all, what we've just talked about. The judgment coming, the hope of a future rescue and what that, how that's gonna ripple out. Jeremiah, as he's thinking about this, what does he do? Do you see the next verses? Are they indented differently in your Bible? He bursts out into song in worship as he's thinking about the, how he's gonna rescue and the effects of that. Verse 19. Oh Lord, my strength, my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. This is him saying, God, you're the one who rescues he's worshiping. But then there's this bonus. It's not just, man, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for rescuing your chosen people, God. He Then it turns to, to you shall the nations come. It's not just the chosen race. It's all nations. It's all the Gentiles will come. And this is This is Jeremiah erupting into worship when he's thinking about this rescue and how it ripples out. He's like, God, you are my refuge and it's gonna ripple out into all nations saying, man, I want in on that and streaming to God. To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and you should be reminded here with ends of the earth of all the language like Romans 5, I mean, like Revelation 5, 9 and 7, 9 that talk about every tribe, tongue and nation around the throne coming to him, giving him praise because he's worthy. And you might think, okay, but Why? Why isn't God satisfied with just saving Israel, his chosen people who got themselves in a bind again? He's gonna rescue them again. Why isn't that enough? Why does he want all nations? And this brings us to one of my favorite verses, and I've got it up here. Isaiah chapter 49, verse six. It is too light a thing. Think about a scale where you've got all the glory that God is worthy of and that he deserves and all the praise on this other side that is gonna tip the scale. And there's something that's just way too small. It's too small a thing that you should be my servant. And this is in Isaiah, prophetically speaking of the servant who will be Jesus. So this is him talking to the servant Jesus. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, to save one people group, one nation is way too small. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. In the end, whenever all nations are streaming to Jesus on the throne, the risen Lamb, and they start giving him praise for how good he is and how he has saved them and, the, and what he deserves and what he is worthy of, then will he begin receiving the eternal, multi-ethnic praise, joy-filled praise that he deserves forever and ever. He's worthy of so much more than the praise of one nation, of of one, and even if that one nation is America, that's not enough. He's worthy. And so Jeremiah is celebrating this. You're my stronghold, my refuge, and all the nations are gonna come from the ends of the earth, and they're gonna say something. All these nations that are streaming to the enthroned risen lamb at the end, they're gonna be saying something. What are they saying here? Look in the quotation marks. Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Do you hear? These are words of repentance. And he's through this little song prophesying of how it's going to go down in the end. God is going to save his people and it's going to ripple out and the rescue is going to be so dramatic that everyone, all the other nations are going to see it and go, whoa, I thought thought 10 plagues out of Egypt was mind blowing, but this one puts it to shame and I want in on this and they're streaming to him giving him praise and saying everything that we came from, all of our false gods, they're worthless, they're lies. And they're coming to Jesus. And then, so this is Jeremiah's little spontaneous praise poem right there. And then it's as if in verse 21, God is responding to Jeremiah. God picks back up the mic here in the the passage and he's saying, yeah, Jeremiah, you're right. This is what's gonna happen. And now God is talking in verse 21. He says, therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Do you see what word is repeated there three times? No, I will make them know. And that word "no" this is glory language. This Pay attention as you're reading through the Bible this year, how many times God does something and then it gives the reason why he does it. It says, so that they will know that God is awesome and he alone is God. It's through the whole Bible, especially in the prophets. And let's just look at Exodus because we're talking about the first Exodus, right? So look, I've got a few up here look in Exodus, we've got how this word know is used. First of all, it's whenever Moses is talking to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, I do not know the Lord. And God says, well, allow me to introduce myself. 10 plagues, you know, it's like, so he's going to know that God is awesome. And then, uh, and then he makes it known to Pharaoh, I am Lord. And then he says to my people, Israel, they will know that I am the Lord your God. And then to the Egyptians, that they will know that I am the Lord. And then he says to Pharaoh, this time I will send all my plagues on your very self and your servants and your people so that, why do he do it? So that you, Pharaoh, may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. This is glory language. God is going to pour out his power and sometimes in wrath and judgment so that all peoples will see it and go, wow, he is awesome. We will see his glory and then give him glory. And look in verse 21 of Jeremiah 16. Therefore, behold, I will make them know, this once I will make them know my power and my might. How exactly is he gonna let them know his power and his might? There's two options. It's either his power and might in rescue or in judgment. And we look at the first Exodus, it was both, right? It was as he... These ten plagues, these signs and wonders, he showed his might. And for Israel, it was rescue that caused them to give him glory. And for Pharaoh and the Egyptians, it was judgment that called, caused them to give him glory. They gave him glory in knowing who he was as they received the judgment. And they had to reckon with man, he, he is awesome. And so here in the second exodus, will it be that they will know his power through rescue or through judgment? That's kind of up to us, isn't it? And who exactly is it talking about when it says them, that they will know? Is this talking about Israel or is it talking about the nations around them Whenever he rescues again who is it that's going to see how awesome he is is it the people getting saved or the people watching them get saved Yes <laughs> right I think it's quite possibly both but here God is saying in response to this little praise poem you're right Jeremiah I am going to rescue my people again and all the nations are gonna see it and they're gonna want in on it and they're gonna stream to me. They're gonna know my power and, my, and they're gonna know my name is the Lord. Now, what is this second rescue? When is this second Rescue. He did rescue once, like it says, as God, as the Lord lives, who rescued them from Egypt. He he once rescued them from a physical enemy, Pharaoh, and physical slavery in Egypt. Then there came a better Moses who delivered from a spiritual enemy and from spiritual slavery by the death of a spotless lamb whose blood, when applied, causes the judgment of God to pass over. Jesus came as the second exodus to rescue again. And it was him taking the wrath and judgment of a holy father on himself, and it killed him. And he rose from the dead and won the victory that whoever would surrender to him as Lord believe that they can be rescued So you could almost say that there's three exoduses here. There's the one with Moses, there's Jesus on the cross and then there's Jesus when he returns, when all will stream to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. Jesus, the risen lamb of God enthroned and the glory of the nations coming in. And a pretty close uh, rephrasing of this oath formula of as the Lord who brought them back would be, holy, holy, holy is the one who is worthy to receive praise, honor, and glory forever and ever, amen. There's gonna be a lot of these oath statements of what he is worthy of, the one who has rescued again. And If you are hanging on to what I said at the beginning, you're like, yeah, you told me that some of us in here feel stuck and that's me. And I wanna know if he's gonna rescue again. Are you telling me I have to wait for this third one? Because the second one's already happened. Jesus died on the cross and he rose. And you're saying I gotta wait until he comes back as king and all nations stream to him for me to be rescued? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you can have rescue right now if you'll believe it. The first rescue was physical and the second was spiritual. The third is gonna be physical. But this spiritual freedom and rescue that we have right now will spill over into the real when we believe What I'm saying is if you feel like you're not free, the only thing keeping you from being free is you not believing that you're free. He has already rescued you. Just like the Israelites have already gone through the Red Sea and it's behind them now. If you're in Christ, he parted the waters of death and went through and of slavery. And you are free with him. If you died with him, you are raised with him now. Will he rescue again? Yes, and he already has. We just have to believe it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being a Lord who didn't just rescue, but who rescues. You aren't the God who saved, but the God who saves. And we don't have to wonder what you're going to do to get us out because you've already done it. We rest, (laughs) we have Sabbath rest because the work has been finished in you, Jesus. Help us believe. We worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray. We hope you've been inspired and blessed by the truths of God's Word shared today. At Faith Bible Church, we believe that all Christians should actively participate in the local church. It is in the community of believers where we grow in faith, encourage one another, and serve God together. We invite you to visit, and hopefully become, a part of our Faith Bible Church family. You'll find a welcoming and nurturing environment to help you grow in your relationship with Christ. Our address, service times, and more information can be found on our website, brazosfaith.org. Thank you again for joining us in this meaningful journey through God's Word.